Good evening. I'm Pastor Brooks. I'll be bringing you the word. Hopefully, um, I'm tempted after a lullaby to shout you all back into being awake, but that's going to happen anyway, and you know it, so I don't, I don't need to try. Um, the text that was written, 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 read, easy for me to say, the text that was read is, is a powerful, powerful parable as we're continuing uh, in our series of the kingdom parables. Do we have it up? This is perfect because this sermon is dependent upon quotes which are not technically behind me yet. So uh, we will wait. We will wait. Uh, let's, let's take a look as we're waiting. Can somebody give me a cue when they're actually up behind me? Okay, thanks, Steve. Uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. It always helps to ask the Lord to, uh, to intercede when we are weak, whether we are parenting or whether we are preaching. Father, we, uh, we acknowledge our utter dependence upon you, whether it's raising children, whether it's uh, just living life, or whether it's preaching the word of God and the technology and everything that goes on day to day. We recognize apart from your sovereign hand, we can't do anything that's really beneficial for the kingdom. So Lord, we beseech you, we plead with you, Lord, to do a work uh, starting in our own hearts tonight as we're looking at a text uh, which calls us to forgive and each and every one of us have been hurt. Each and every one of us has caused hurt. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would do work in hearts uh, tonight, starting with ours, Lord, as we look at your gospel, as we look at this parable. Lord, help us to apply it, help us to believe it. And Lord, we pray that you would rule and reign in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Prayer is an amazing thing. And also, Steve, whoever helped back there is also amazing. So I want to start with a quote by Corey Ten Boom. <laughs> of course it doesn't work. <laughs> so it's up there, but there we go. Did you advance or did it I? So we're going to have to do the whole, okay, super terrific. All right, here we go. Uh, Corey Ten Boom was part of the Dutch resistance during World War II, and she helped helped hide Jews, and then get them uh, safe passage out of the country during, during the Nazi occupation during World War II. And her and her whole family was eventually caught, uh, captured, and they all went to concentration camps. Uh, her and her sister Betsy went to Ravensbrück, which is in Germany. Work now? No? It's good now. Okay. They both went to uh, Ravensbrück, where Betsy eventually died. And through a quote-unquote clerical error, uh, Corey Ten Boom was eventually released before the war actually ended. Now, I say clerical as in quote-unquote because that's the sovereign hand of God. He had purposed for her greater things, and she has preached, before she died in the mid-'80s, she preached on every continent uh, on the globe with the exception of Antarctica, uh, preached the gospel. She was preaching in Munich, Germany after the war in the late 40s, and she was speaking on the subject of forgiveness. The topic was that God has forgiven us and he has cast our sins as far as away as the east is from the west. And she used a famous line, which she often uses, and he has cast them into the sea and he has posted a sign on the beach that says no fishing. So this message was all about forgiveness. And as soon as she was done preaching, the congregation filed out of the church and she recognized a former guard in the concentration camp of Ravensbrück. So let's pick it up. 
You mentioned Ravensbrück in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. No, he did not remember me. But since that time he went on, I've become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things that I did there, but I'd like to hear from you, from your lips as well. Fraulein, again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there. I whose sins had again and again to be forgiven. And I could not forgive. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? Here's the reality. Forgiveness is how we enter into the kingdom of God. And the ethos of the kingdom of God is to be characterized by grace giving and grace receiving. You and I are called to forgive, but that does not take away the reality that forgiveness is terribly difficult. Terribly difficult. Apart from the grace of God, I don't see how it's possible. I mean, what would you do in this context? I mean, what, what have you done? I want you to think about the, 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 the wound in your heart that is the deepest, which was probably caused by someone that you love. In this case, it's caused by a stranger, an enemy, the Nazi regime. But nonetheless, there are deep wounds that each person here feels, and, and Christ calls us to forgive, and that's hard. Today, we're going to look at the parable of the unmerciful servant. So in your Bibles, the scripture that was read, that Amy read, is Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. We're going to be talking about the necessity of forgiveness. We're going to look at three things. What is forgiveness? What? Why should we forgive? Why? And then how do I forgive? Where do I derive the strength and the ability to do what sometimes seems quite unreasonable? to forgive someone who has hurt me or hurt you, hurt us deeply, intentionally or unintentionally. Sometimes they own the sin, sometimes they don't. How do we deal with that? That's what we're going to be looking at. So, first of all, context. This parable begins not with a parable, but with a question. It's Peter's question to Jesus. He says, so how often should I forgive? Up to, up to seven? Now, the, the common understanding in Peter's day, rabbinical teaching was that you are being super generous if you, you forgive someone three separate times for the same thing. So once, twice, three times. Wow, you are super gracious. So Peter is, says, so seven must be really awesome. And Jesus, of course, counters with, well, not seven, but 70 times seven. Jesus is not trying to put a, a number on the amount of time. The point is, don't limit it, Peter. Don't limit it. Now, a little bit more context. The first word in verse 21 is what? It's then. Well, that, that assumes there's something that comes before it. What has happened in verses 15 through 20, I'm not going to take any time to go there. I'm just going to summarize. Jesus does a little teaching on when you're sinned against, you shouldn't just simply lay down and take it. You should go and you should tell your offender their fault. And if they repent, that's the best case scenario. If they don't repent, you should bring a couple other witnesses along to establish 
uh, the fact that they have sinned against you. And the goal here is repentance and restoration and reconciliation. So he's just given a little talk, a little teaching on the fact that you should not be a doormat, that when you're sinned against, you should tell the person that you've, that's hurt you that they have hurt you so that you can for, they, they can repent and you can, you can reconcile and forgive. So that's the context. That's where Peter's question comes in. So he says, not seven, but 77 times. Therefore, and now he enters into the parable. So this is attached to all of this. The idea that forgiveness is to be the ethos, the characteristic of the kingdom of God. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servant. A couple things with this parable. It's important before we get into the meat here. Uh, two caveats. Number one, this parable is not a comprehensive guide to forgiveness. Uh, if you're thinking about your hurt, and the sin which has been committed against you, and even the sins you've committed against someone else, and you're thinking and you're looking for this parable to be a comprehensive guide on all things forgiveness and reconciliation, you're going to be disappointed. You're go- There's a lot of what-ifs. There's a lot of what-ifs. What if the person who has harmed me, who has sinned against me, what if they won't own the fact that they've sinned against me? What if the person who sinned against me has passed away and gone and, and, and is now into eternity and I don't have the opportunity to confront them, let alone forgive them? There's a lot of what-ifs that are not answered here. Now, what this parable is about is it emphasizes the necessity to forgive. Now, this is typical of Jesus' parables. A lot of times we want to take a parable like the four soils or like the mustard seed and we want to build a comprehensive theology about all things around it. That's not wise. That's not the purpose of the parables. That's not why Jesus uses them. Remember Peter's question, how many times should I forgive? Seven? The point of this parable is, no, Peter, there's no limit. Now, he doesn't go into a comprehensive, and here's how you reconcile, and here's what justice is, and here's, this, here's retribution. No, it's just forgive. Just forgive. Uh, so keep that in mind as, as we go forward, and it, this, this, this will make a lot more sense to you, and it will be a, a, a lot clearer. So what is forgiveness? The first thing, the first thing. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, there was brought to him one who owed 10,000 talents. So he could not pay his master order and be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. Forgiveness always assumes that there's a debt. Now, in this case, it's literally monetary. But it could be a debt of honor. It could be a debt of love. Something has been taken from the offended party. could be respect. It could be sexual purity. It could be any number of things, any number of things. So sin against someone, a sin of uh, commission done against someone, or a sin of neglect, omission, those who are offended are owed something. So in this case, it's a literal amount of money. It's 10,000 talents. Now, a talent is a unit of measurement. It's a weight. And if you monetize this and you're talking about gold or silver, uh, this was said to be, in this day, one talent was 20 years worth of wages. So let's go with a poverty level. Let's say that in our day, you make 20000 annually. Now, some of you are like your students. You make less than that. But, so let's just go with that. $20,000. 20 years of $20,000 times 10000 This is at least $4 billion. That's a lot of debt to be incurred. Now, if you're a student of the Word and you're looking at that and you're like, when you think of servant, what do you think of? 
butler, maid, cook. How does a butler rack up $4 billion debt? That is an absurd amount of internet gambling. Okay, it could be that, but who's the king? If anyone that's under him, a servant to the king, this could be Caesar, and the servant could be Pilate. Okay, so this could be a governor of of a whole province or someone who's responsible for collecting tax revenue for a province in the Roman Empire. If you look at it, king, servant, and that, and you're like, okay, that kind of money makes some sense. But the point is, Jesus is using an incredibly absurd amount so that you get the idea that this kind of debt is not going to be paid back. It can't be paid back. That's the point. So debt always, or rather forgiveness, always assume debt. Now forgiveness is the canceling of that debt. So the servant falls on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I'll pay you back everything. By the way, do you see him paying back everything? If you owe someone 10,000 times 20 years wages, if you work for the rest of your life, you're not going to make that much money. So this is an absurd proposition that he's going to pay it back. But he has pity on him, and he says he released him and forgave the debt. So debt or sin requires a debt. We, we owe something. So it's pretty clear that the king is to represent our heavenly father here, and we are, are in a sense, represented by the servant. So we owe God. Turning your Bibles to uh, Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Let's just take a look at one verse here. Romans 1, verse 21. Paul says, Although they, that is mankind, knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. It says we exchange the glory of God for, for a lie, for images made uh, to represent creeping things. So what's owed God is honor. What's owed God is thanksgiving. What's owed God is worship. But mankind in his sinfulness and his rebellion has given glory to that which is not God and not given God that which we owe him. Worship, honor, thanksgiving. Paul says that, the, that, that all mankind has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all failed in that regard. And we've all accumulated a 10,000 talent debt. And Romans 6.23 doesn't monetize that debt, but it does tell us the price of that debt. The wages of sin is death. We have worked up a sin debt, and we owe God. And if he calls that debt due, then we, like this person, we can't pay it. And, and the, wages of sin is, the wages of sin is death. Now that's in a, in a vertical in a vertical relationship, but even in a horizontal relationship. All sin incurs debt. So when someone sins against you, they take something from you. They take something from you. So think of a sin that doesn't have anything to do with money. Um, sexual abuse. You didn't ask for to be victimized, but you were victimized. And, and the perpetrator took something which belonged to you that you cannot get back. They owe you something, and how much is that worth? Your sexual purity or, or slander. What it, when someone slanders you, what do they do? What do they take from you? They take from you your reputation. 
they take from you your reputation. Now, in both of those occasions, in both of those occasions, whether it's, it's sexual abuse or whether it's slander, the person who is going to forgive, if they are going to forgive, they have to be willing to write the check for the offense against them. So for you to forgive someone, you have to be willing to pay the price for what you have lost because you can't get it back. How many of you ever heard forgiveness is free? Well, if you've heard it, it's completely false. My forgiveness and your forgiveness was not free. It required Christ's payment of his own blood for my sin and your sin. And for us to forgive, we are going to be out. How much is this, the king out, literally, in this, in this text? 10,000 talents. So for monetizing it conservatively, $4 billion. That's $4 billion that's not going to go to infrastructure as the king. That's $4 billion that's not going to pay the salary of the army. That's $4 billion that's not going to pave roads. It's not going to buy food for the palace and all of his servants. That's $4 billion. He's just out. He's out. And for you to forgive, whether it's a gross injustice done against you or whether it's a fairly trivial common sin, you are going to have to write the emotional check and you are going to have to no longer demand that that person pay you what you owe them. Make sense? And this is a common thing. Whenever you feel wronged, you feel disrespected. You feel like the person who has sinned against you owes you respect and they haven't given you that respect. And if you're going to forgive them, you're going to have to let that go and, and not demand retribution and payment for the sin debt which they incurred against you. So all forgiveness requires, uh, requires a canceling of a debt of sorts. Now, this is important that we look at what forgiveness is not, because as I said before in the beginning, this is not a, an end-all and be-all on the subject of forgiveness. And there's a lot of what-ifs. So first of all, forgiveness is not condoning what the person did. If you write the emotional check and say, I forgive you and I no longer demand payment, for the wrong which you committed against me, or the neglect that you failed to, to, to serve or love me, if you do that, if you do that, uh, that's not condoning, condoning their sin, maybe, depending on how you view forgiveness. So how many of you, someone has come to you and they said, I'm sorry for fill in the blank. How many of you have ever had anyone say I'm sorry? Okay, that should be all of you, unless you live in a very dysfunctional world where no one has ever apologized. Most people have received an apology. Now, I would like participation here. How many of you have said to someone, oh, that's okay? That's condoning. When you tell someone that what they did, they come and they say, I'm sorry I did this. And you say, it's okay. What you have just said is, what you did didn't hurt me. It wasn't sin. It's, that's what okay means, right? It's okay. Is it okay? Is someone's sin against you okay? Yes or no? Then why do we tell people it's okay? That's why people have a problem with forgiveness. Because they think that forgiving someone means telling them it's okay. Stop saying it's okay. It's not okay. I catch myself doing this when someone apologizes to me. I said, oh, it's okay. It's like, recently I did that and then I stopped myself. Well, no, that's not what I meant. It's not okay. What I mean is, thank you for acknowledging that what you did potentially wounded me and I forgive you. 
See, if you do that and you forgive someone, by virtue of forgiving, you are letting them know that what you are forgiving isn't okay. So it's the opposite of condoning. Saying okay, oh, that's okay. That's condoning. Saying I forgive you acknowledges that they have sinned against you and you are extending grace and mercy to them. That is not condoning. It's not condoning. And also, see the verses that precede it. Context is everything. He's just taught them to go to people and tell them, you hurt me. You sinned against me. It's not okay for you to treat me as a doormat. And then they repent and then you forgive. So it's not condoning. And also, forgiveness does not always mean extending trust. Again, this is not mentioned in the parable, but I want you to think worst case scenario. If you are a victim of, of some form of abuse, sexual abuse or otherwise, this is not a parable that says that you should continue to put yourself in a situation where you are continually to be abused. That is not what this is saying. Hence, see the verses that precede it. Confront your brother, tell them they're in sin, and if they don't repent, bring others involved. Get others involved. This is not you being a doormat. I'm somewhat impassioned about this because oftentimes people assume that Jesus is just telling people to be a doormat. He's not. He's not. Back to the parable. How much money was owed? 10,000 talents. How much money was forgiven? 10,000 talents. Let's talk about what's not in this parable. What's not in this parable is the king says, okay, here's your job back. Now go manage more of my money. Why isn't that in the parable? Because he got canned. You can be forgiven an offense and lose your job. You can be forgiven in a marital situation and lose your marriage. If you no longer demonstrate that you are trustworthy, forgiveness can, can actually be granted without extending trust. That is a related but separate subject. Forgiveness and reconciliation are two, two they go together, but you can grant forgiveness. You can grant forgiveness to someone who is not trustworthy. But that does not mean that you put yourself uh, at their disposal to be continually to be sinned against again and again and again. That's not addressed in this parable, but it's important that I mention that because a lot of people will hear this teaching and that's where they go. And I understand why they would go there because you're thinking of worst case scenario, someone's really hurt me and I don't want to be hurt again. So uh, forgiveness is not condoning and it uh, does not always mean extending trust. Here's a, let's move on to the next portion here and that is why. Why should I forgive? But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servants fell down and pleaded with him. A uh, fellow servant fell down, pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. Where have you heard that before? That's exactly what he said earlier to the king. So he's, the, the guy that owes him a hundred denarii, by the way, a hundred denarii, one denarii is a day's wage. So a hundred denarii is a hundred days wage. That's not insignificant. That's a decent amount of money. But that's not 20 years times 10,000 years wage. The, the, the scope, the difference between these two is enormous intentionally. And he refuses to forgive. He refuses and put him, he says, uh, uh, he refused, went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant 
as I had mercy on you. As I had mercy on you. The first thing is we forgive because we have been forgiven. Secondly, secondly, and in anger this master's master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Why should I forgive? Two reasons. Two reasons. Number one, because I've been forgiven. Should you not have had mercy because I had mercy on you? The impetus for forgiveness is the fact that I've been forgiven 10,000 talents worth of sin. That's been washed away by the blood of Christ. And the fact that my brother or sister or someone in Christ or someone who doesn't know Jesus has sinned against me and accumulated 100 denarii or 100 100 days worth of wages or sin debt against me is insignificant compared to the amount I've been forgiven. So therefore, having received mercy, I should grant grant mercy. There's a second reason, because it's torture not to. It's torture not to forgive, both in this life and the next. Let's take a look back to Corey Tinboom. Still standing there, we left off with her staring at this guy with a cold heart, not able to forgive. I could not, it could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do. Just stop right there and imagine who's saying this, and how do you measure what's difficult in life? What's the most difficult thing you and I have ever done or ever had to do? This woman spent years in a Nazi concentration camp, and the most difficult thing she ever had to do is shake a man's hand in a foyer of a church after a sermon. You need to understand that whatever you're struggling with and forgiveness is difficult. Please understand that forgiveness is hard. This is not easy. This is a godly woman who understands the grace of God and she's wrestling with it. Most hard thing, difficult thing she's ever had to do. For I had to do it. And I knew that the message that God forgives is the prior condition that we forgive those who injured us. If you do not forgive men's trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. So the reason, the why, I should forgive, you should forgive because we've been forgiven. But there's a second reason because it's torture not to. Look at what she says. I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but also as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what the physical scars. Those who nursed their bitterness bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. It's torture not to forgive. Here's what happens. Someone wounds you. And again, I want to be sensitive to the fact that many of you have experienced sin against you by those who you trusted, by those who were strangers. Some of you have experienced gross injustice and the wounds that you have in your heart are very deep. And the forgiveness is not cheap and it's not easy. So I, want to, I don't want to minimize your pain here. But to allow that pain to become bitterness and forgiveness not be extended will eat you from the inside out. It is terribly common for victims of sexual abuse to never get an I'm sorry from the perpetrator. Do you understand that? What happens 
when the perpetrator goes to their grave and the victim of sexual abuse never has an opportunity to hear, I'm sorry, and henceforth is consumed by bitterness because they never release that forgiveness. Do you know what happens? It's torture. They are controlled by someone who is dead or doesn't care about the sin against them. This is what Corey Ten Boom is talking about in terms of working with survivors of the Holocaust who are becoming embittered towards the individuals who harmed them, who never owned their hurt. They couldn't function in society. The bitterness ate them up from the inside out. It's torture in this life. It's also potentially torture in the next life. Here's, here's what Jesus is not saying, and here's, here's what Corey Ten Boom is not saying, that if you are a Christian and you run into a situation where you are unreconciled with a brother or sister in Christ or somebody who doesn't know Jesus and they've hurt you and, and you're struggling with forgiveness like Corey Ten Boom, Jesus is not saying that the Father's going to come along and say, oh, I see you're wrestling with forgiveness. Well, I'm taking my forgiveness back. You know, yesterday you were a child of God, but not today. You blew it. You didn't forgive quick enough. So you're done. You're going to hell. Torture for you. That is not what Jesus is, is articulating here. I think uh, um, Klein Snodgrass in his uh, Stories with Intent, which is a huge commentary on the parables, he summed it up very succinctly in this sentence. Forgiveness not shown is forgiveness not known. That's the principle here. If you and I never extend forgiveness, it's not saying it's easy. If we never extend forgiveness, it's an indication that we have not received forgiveness. Again, we're not saying that it makes it easy. It's just, it's an indicator that grace not given is probably grace not received. So let's move on to the how-tos. Well, how do I do this? Yes, it's hard. It's very hard. How do I forgive? Go back to verse 26. We're back up to the top of the parable again. The key is right there, highlighted, italicized, bold, and in red. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. Out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. So where did the forgiveness come from? It came from out of pity. Now that word pity, if you have an NIV, I think your translation is um, compassion. Okay, pity, compassion are, are synonymous. Let's take a look at what the word in Greek is. I dare you to try to pronounce it. Splanchnizomai. Rolls off the tongue, right? Not so much. So here's what that word in the Greek means. It means to have compassion, pity, deep, what's that word? Empathy. Deep empathy. Expresses having deep compassion. This verb is similar to what is expressed in modern language as a feeling of one's gut or heart of deep, what is it? Empathy for another person. The key word here is empathy. That's what's meant by pity. Deep empathy. Tim Keller uh, says that there is an English idiom for this phrase. It's called, my heart goes out. My, uh, my heart went out to this person. What does that mean? When you empathize with someone, it doesn't mean that you necessarily feel sorry for them. What it does mean is that you identify with them. In other words, your heart goes out, you identify with them as a fellow human being who is suffering the consequences of their own sin, and you, you, you in a sense, identify, you enter into solidarity with them. Make sense? 
Uh, this is a particular, particularly helpful quote by the name of my man by the name of uh, Mirslav Volf. He is a, a, a former Serbian. He lived in Serbia during the Croatian-Serbia conflict. I believe at one point in time, I believe he was a prisoner of war. I can't remember all the details, and there was a lot of hurt involved, uh, a lot of pain involved in that particular civil war. And he eventually immigrated to the United States. He is a professor of divinity at uh, Yale College. And he's written a number of, of articles and books on the subject of reconciliation, justice, and forgiveness. And here in one of his essays on forgiveness, he had the following quote. Forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans, even as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. In other words, there is a failure to empathize. The person who has harmed you, the person who has harmed me, I cannot and will not forgive them because I cannot identify with them as a human being. I exclude them from the community of humanity and I exclude myself from the community of sinners. Here's a very common scenario. If you ever watch, you get into documentaries about World War II or any context where uh, 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 crimes against humanity have been committed, this is very common. The perpetrators view the victims as less than human. Nazis viewed Jews as less than human. The Japanese viewed the, uh, the POWs as, as less than them, less than human. Consequently, the victims of, the, of these war crimes viewed their perpetrators as less than human. The Jews viewed the Nazis as monsters, not human. The POWs viewed the Japanese, their captor, their, those who held them in captivity, as monsters, not human. So consequently, this is what's happening. You are not extending uh, empathy to the perpetrators. You don't see them as human, and you don't see yourself as a sinner. You, in a sense, become the object of last week's parable. Do you remember the, the tax collector and the Pharisee? What did the Pharisee pray when he stood alone by himself? I thank you, God, that I am not like those Nazis, that I am not like this person who harmed me. How many of you have had difficulty forgiving someone and you have thought to yourself, I would never do what they did? Anybody? There you go. That is excluding yourself from the camp of sinners. Now that doesn't mean that you have done what they've done. It doesn't mean that we're guilty of the same atrocities as war criminals and so forth and so on. But what including people in the camp of humanity, including ourselves in the camp of sinners, simply means is that we stand at level ground under the shadow of the cross. And I recognize that although I have not done everything which someone has done against me, I am fully capable of that and far worse. I'm not better than them. You are not better than your worst enemy or perpetrator. We are all together under the stain of sin. Now it manifests itself differently. I'm not saying that everybody here is as bad as a Nazi war criminal. I am saying that we have the same exact human nature and the same propensity for evil. And when we acknowledge that, we can empathize. Empathize. And then in light of the fact that we've been forgiven much, we can forgive. Let's close out. I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion, and I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Help, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supplied the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, 
I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder. It raced down my arm and it sprang to our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother. I cried with all my heart. And for a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. Now I ask you, did Corey Ten Boom know something of the love of God before that moment? And yet she experienced the love and grace of mercy on a level that she'd never experienced because she was willing to count herself as a member of the camp of sinners. And she was not ruled by the feelings that ruled her heart, that ruled so many of our hearts. So many of you have been hurt and you've been wounded and you find it difficult to forgive. And if you have not, you will be. And I don't want to minimize your pain, but if you wait around until you feel the impetus welling up within you to extend the hand of grace and say, I forgive you, you will die a bitter old person. But if you go to the foot of the cross and you receive the grace of God that comes through the forgiveness that Jesus Christ gave on the cross, and you cry out to him and you receive that grace, you also receive with that grace the Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit empowers you to to fix your eyes on Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of your faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross and he scorned its shame that you might experience redemption. And when you meditate on the cost of grace to you and the freedom which he gives you and the forgiveness and you meditate on that, you see yourself in the camp of sinners, but you're a redeemed sinner. And then that enables you to identify with the offender as a fellow sinner, a recipient of grace. And when you do that, now you are positioned to act according in faith by extending grace. And then you can cancel the debt. I finished this sermon after the second service. And a guy that I've been talking to is really struggling with this subject. He says, it's a great sermon, but nice try. Don't wait around until the planets align and everything is just right before you let go of the right to demand retribution for the sins committed against you. If you do, you're going to be swallowed up by your own bitterness. Instead, let the grace of God swallow that for you on the cross. Christ took your sins to the cross. Bring their sins to the cross. Let Jesus pay the price. And then let the love of God fill you. Let the Holy Spirit bring about the healing. But the canceling of the debt has to come first. There's so much I wish I could address in this particular sermon. Like I said, this is not a comprehensive guide to the subject. It's just speaking to the necessity to forgive.
Some of you are, you come from difficult relationships. Some of you are in difficult relationships. I would like to recommend a book from you which is comprehensive on this subject. It's called The Peacemaker by Ken Sandy. It's an outstanding resource. Um, you, can, you can ask Amy Marino or, or Jason or Steve, and they can get a copy of that in your hands. Uh, that does speak to all the what-ifs, which I did not cover. But the one thing which is clear from this, this, this text, Jesus' sermon, is don't limit forgiveness. Don't limit forgiveness. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. It is completely undeserved, but you give it anyway. Lord, we are the servant with 10,000 talents worth of debt. Lord, help us not to be so foolish as to think that we could ever work to pay off that debt. Lord, we come to you and we graciously and we, we with grateful hearts thank you for your mercy and thank you for the cross and give us the grace to forgive others as we have freely been forgiven so that we might bring glory to you who died for us. In Jesus' name, amen.